0: Romans chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, this is the word of God. Let us hear it. Him that is weak in the faith, receive ye, but not the doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth. For God hath received him. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day regardeth it unto the Lord. And he that regardeth not the day, to the Lord he doth not regard it. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks. And he that eateth not, to the Lord he eateth not, and giveth God thanks. For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord, and whether we die, we die unto the Lord, Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and living. But why dost thou judge thy brother, or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, Every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Let us not therefore judge one another any more, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself But to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. Let not then your good be evil spoken of. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. For he that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace, and things wherewith one may edify another. For meat, destroy not the work of God. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for that man who eateth with offense. It is good neither to eat flesh nor to drink wine, Nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth, or is offended, or is made weak. Hast thou faith? Have it to thyself before God. Happy is he that condemneth not himself in that thing which he alloweth. And he that doubteth is damned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Amen. We'll end our reading at the end of the chapter. We know that the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. If I could call your attention in particular to the words of verse 17, where Paul says, For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. The kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Think about that first phrase in the verse, the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, as it's often called by Christ. It's a very vast topic in the New Testament. You could say it's a subject that dominates the Gospels in particular. It's the very first message we meet in the Gospel of Matthew as we read of John the Baptist in Matthew 3, verses 1 and 2, which tell us, In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's this very message that is picked up and advanced by Christ himself. Following Christ's baptism and temptation in the wilderness, we read in Matthew 4 how he commenced his public ministry. Matthew 4 and verse 17, From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We should note then the continuity between John the Baptist's ministry and Christ's ministry. They preach the same message. And it's worth noting in our day when the notion of repentance has in some circles become controversial, that if we would imitate the ministry of John the Baptist and we would imitate the ministry of Christ, then we must call upon sinners everywhere to repent. And so we find then that the subject of the kingdom of heaven becomes a prominent part of Christ's earthly ministry. In Matthew 4, and verse 23, we read, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. It becomes a prominent part of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That sermon begins in Matthew 5 and verse 3. We find a little later on in Matthew's gospel that when Christ speaks in parables, he uses those parables to explain or illustrate uh, the concept or the subject of the kingdom. Matthew 13, 11, It is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. He said to his disciples when they asked him to explain why he was speaking in parables. And so the subject of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven would be a prominent part of Christ's teaching ministry right up to the time that he would be crucified. And once he rose from the dead... We discover in the book of Acts that the subject of the kingdom was still the subject of his teaching ministry. It's the subject of his post resurrection, pre ascension ministry. Acts chapter 1 and verse 3 To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And when the apostles take up the ministry that's committed to them by Christ, we find that they don't vary from that subject either. They take up the subject of the kingdom. The conclusion of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost states the fact that Christ was seated on his throne. So you see a kingdom aspect to that sermon on Pentecost. This is his conclusion now, Peter's conclusion in Acts 4, verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Not surprisingly, then, we come to the end of the book of Acts, And we discover that Paul's mission was to teach and preach the kingdom, the very thing he did throughout his missionary journeys. Acts 28 and verse 30, And Paul dwelt two whole years in his own hired house, and received all that came in unto him, preaching the kingdom of God, and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ, with all confidence, no man forbidding him you begin to see then just how vast a subject or how consistent uh, a topic, might be a better way to put it, is this subject of the kingdom of God. And just as there have always been controversies and misunderstandings about the kingdom of God, so there continues to be controversies about the kingdom in our day. Right before Christ ascended to go into heaven, his disciples asked him a question. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? It seems that in spite of all they had been taught, and in uh, in spite of all that Christ had preached, uh, there was still some fuzzy thinking on their part pertaining to the kingdom to suggest that it would at that very time be established. There are those that see a future aspect to the kingdom who don't seem to see any present aspect to it. There are those that see a present aspect to it but don't seem to be able to see the future aspect of it. Will there be a millennial kingdom? If so, will it be before or after the coming of Christ? Will there be a new heaven and a new earth that will arise from the present aspect of the kingdom? These are all questions that make for interesting discussions and debates among ourselves. And I think it wise that our denomination has taken the position of being charitable to all views that can affirm, at the very least, a personal second coming of Jesus Christ. So long as you can affirm that, you are free to establish the details and the order to your own satisfaction as to how you think things are going to fall out. And if you find yourself at odds with someone else, well, not everyone can be right. So you have that prerogative uh, to hold your view. Now it's not my purpose today to delve into these controversies. I do have a view on these things. What I want you to see is that given Uh, the consistency with which the subject of the kingdom has been taught, you know, spanning John the Baptist and Christ and the apostles, they all spoke on the subject of the kingdom. It's always a blessing then when you can come across a statement of scripture that defines the matter for you very concisely. There are actually two verses in the New Testament that I think give very concise definitions of the kingdom of God, both in terms of what it is not and what it is, negatively and positively. One of those verses is found in 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 20. Paul writes, For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. So there you see a negative and positive aspect given of the kingdom. You see the simple analysis of what it is, what it is not. It is not simply in word, or it is not merely a speech, but it is in power, the power of the preaching of the gospel of Christ. And the second verse that gives that concise definition is in the words of our text that I've just read. Romans 14, verse 17. Notice how the same analysis can apply what it's not and what it is. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but, here comes the positive explanation, righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. In the context of this chapter in Romans, you can say that the kingdom of God is not to be found in mere external religious observances that are insignificant in and of themselves, such things as what you eat and what you drink and what days you may observe, but in contrast to such matters which very often find men making mountains out of molehills. The kingdom of God consists rather in righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. What a concise and yet comprehensive definition, then, Paul gives to the subject of the kingdom of God. There are very large words in this verse in terms of the concepts that are taught. The word kingdom arguably is a very large word in terms of the concept it conveys. The word righteousness, same thing, a very large term in terms of the concept it communicates. And even the terms joy and peace, small words if you're looking just at the number of letters in them, but very large words in terms of what they communicate, the concepts behind them. And yet these words all appear within the confines of this single verse in Scripture. And so it's very important for us to be able to define the kingdom this concisely, because it makes it possible for us to do two things. It makes it possible for us to discern whether or not we're subjects of this kingdom, And it also makes it possible to enable us to determine our duties within this kingdom. I want to look at this definition very simply today in terms of how Paul defines it. So we'll look at these terms here for a few moments this afternoon. The first term used to define the kingdom is righteousness. The kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness. And this certainly stands to reason, since our God is a righteous God, it would stand to reason his kingdom would be a righteous kingdom. Psalm 11, and verse 7, For the righteous Lord loveth righteousness, his countenance doth behold the upright. And in Hebrews, we see in particular that Christ's scepter and therefore his kingdom, a scepter being that, what would you call it, that fancy stick that is uh, held out by a king. His scepter is described as a scepter of righteousness, his kingdom characterized by righteousness. Hebrews one, eight, and nine. But under the sun, he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. We must acknowledge that the kingdom of God then is founded on righteousness and that its design is to promote righteousness. Given the nature of God, we must conclude that his righteousness will never be compromised in his kingdom. Indeed, Christ himself said that righteousness is the very necessary qualification for his kingdom. Matthew 5 and verse 20, Christ speaking, For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. This is why the kingdom of God is not merely meat and drink. That's what the Pharisees endeavored to make it. Just so many rules and regulations that you had to externally comply with in order to be in God's kingdom. Christ shows that the standard is actually much higher than that. The righteousness that comes from the meat and drink mentality is not enough. And I might add that it is also not enough to say that grace brings me into the kingdom without transforming my life. There are those, you know, that think that way. Kind of on the opposite extreme. They turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. They deceive themselves into thinking that grace provides an excuse for sin. And so we read In 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. You might be tempted to think that in the light of such a stern text that righteousness shuts you out of the kingdom. Indeed, who among us could qualify to be subjects of such a kingdom when our righteousness amounts to filthy rags? Well, the next verse in 1 Corinthians shows how the Corinthians qualified for the kingdom of God. Paul goes on to write in chapter 6, verse 11 of First Corinthians, And such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. Such were some of you. That's a very important key. The gospel of the kingdom, you see, transforms a sinner. Grace doesn't leave a sinner in his sin. It transforms him out of his sin to be a saint, which is just another name for a holy person, one who is righteous. We are washed and sanctified, and justified, and this provision comes from Christ and is applied by the Holy Ghost. This is how we gain entrance into God's kingdom, by the righteousness he provides, which is followed by the righteousness which we produce. It's justification and sanctification working hand in hand. The two are distinct, And yet they go together. And we always have to be very careful to know the distinction between them lest we find ourselves striving for something in the wrong way. Striving perhaps for the right thing, but in the wrong way. We strive to be righteous because God has given us righteousness from his Son. And once we understand that we are justified by faith, and it is through our justification that God provides for us a righteousness outside of ourselves, it follows that we have peace with God. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5 1. And this is the second element of Paul's definition of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is not uh, meat and drink, but righteousness and peace. Like the term kingdom and righteousness, the term peace is a large word in that it encompasses a very deep concept. Very often in the Old Testament, the term was applied to the quietness that would ensue from the absence of conflict. It would seem, wouldn't it, that much of Old Testament history is the record of war. War from within, war from without. The times in which Israel was not either at war from other nations or at war within itself uh, were seemingly rare. what a blessing such times would be when they did occur on occasion. But the term also refers to that inward peace of soul. And this is how we think of it primarily in terms of the gospel. Though I suppose you could argue uh, that the same concept of warfare comes to bear uh, here also. We are no longer at war with God, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And through our knowledge of and faith in Christ's atoning death, we are able to be at peace in our souls because we know that justice has been satisfied. It's impossible for a man or woman with a troubled conscience to be at peace inwardly. Sinners seek to stifle the voice of their conscience in order to be at peace with themselves while they pursue their vices, and while they succeed in experiencing pleasure, they don't really succeed in experiencing peace. What I want you to think on now, however, is peace in terms of how it relates to the kingdom of God, Christ's kingdom in our text is defined as peace. And we can draw a couple of applications from this definition that are pertinent to what we know and what we see today and what do we see today. The nations are in turmoil. We hear, don't we, somewhat regularly that the Middle East is in such turmoil, turmoil that may escalate and pull many nations into it. Wars and rumors of war certainly characterize our day as Christ said they would. One of the things that a few years back, I don't know how true this is today, I suppose it happens still today, used to be fascinating to see how the stock market and oil prices respond to the wars and rumors of wars. I can remember a time in the not-too-distant past when all the ruler of Iran had to do was rattle his sword before the media and you can count on paying higher prices at the gas pump the next day. Such is the nervousness of those who invested at that time in the oil industry, and I suppose that's probably as true today as it's ever been. Within our own country, there's great turmoil. The debate between personal liberty versus national defense stirs the passions of many. Our concern for the security of our borders and our dismay at declining morality in our culture creates great anxiety and distress. I think it's good in such tumultuous times to fall back on the truth that the kingdom of God is at peace in all of this. Christ doesn't become nervous by the rising price of oil. Christ is not disturbed, nor is his throne threatened by what powerful nations do or by what terrorists manage to accomplish. Christ's kingdom, you see, has never needed political permission in order to make its advances. The success of Christ's kingdom does not depend on the United States Constitution's provision for religious freedom or the enforcement of that provision. To see the dismay that seems to overcome many Christians, you might think that it did. But in spite of the efforts of kings and rulers to break the bands of Christ and cast away his his cords, Christ, our king, is at peace, so much so that he can laugh at the puny conspiracies of sinners to overthrow his kingdom. And so if our king is at peace, then the mark of the true subjects of this king is that they are at peace also. And that's not to say that our peace consists of indifference to what's going on around us. On the contrary, we are concerned to the point that we pray for our rulers and for our sin-sick nation. We would not wish the wrath that this nation invites itself to upon any... So we pray and we labor and we educate ourselves and try to live intelligently in the knowledge of what's taking place around us. But what we must not do, indeed, what the Christian cannot do, is press the panic button in such a way that he caves into despair. A subject of Christ's kingdom is not one, you see who paces the floor, wringing his hands with a sense of hopelessness. This would be to deny our Lord and his kingdom. And the kingdom of God is defined as peace, because a peace that passes understanding is the portion of the subjects of God's kingdom. Peace I leave with you, our king says to us. My peace I give unto you not as the world giveth give I unto you let not your heart be troubled neither let it be afraid John 14:27 The kingdom of which Christians are subjects is the kingdom that is pictured in the book of Daniel as the stone cut out of the mountain without hands and it is this stone that smites the image that represents the major kingdoms of the world And the image crumbles to dust before this stone, and then this stone grows into a great mountain. Oh, let the assurance of that vision, therefore, minister peace to your heart. There is nothing like knowing in advance the outcome of an event that can bring a Christian to peace and can serve to enable that believer to maintain his stability and sanctity in the midst of tumultuous times. Now it is because the kingdom of God is defined as righteousness and peace that the kingdom can further be defined as joy. Joy in the Holy Ghost. There are a number of terms in the Old Testament that depict this joy I like the verse in Proverbs 13, verse 9, that begins, The light of the righteous rejoiceth. The term rejoiceth in that verse can literally read, is bright. The light of the righteous is bright. The term brings to mind the picture of Moses in the mount, whose countenance shone brightly when he beheld the glory of the Lord. Or we may picture the disciples in the Mount of Transfiguration with Christ when they beheld Christ and Moses and Elijah shining with a radiance that outshone the sun. By comparing these pictures with this verse in Proverbs, we can say that there is a connection between our joy and the brightness of our countenances. A subject of the kingdom of God is one then, who not only endures and perseveres in the midst of a world that is hostile to God and to Christ, but the joy of his salvation enables him to shine brightly even in the midst of such circumstances. Rather interesting to note, if you read in the book of Acts, that one of the marks of that early church was that it was a church characterized by great joy. It's in the context of that church being scattered abroad in chapter 8, where we have the account of Philip going to Samaria, preaching the gospel there, seeing the power of the gospel manifested, and in that setting of preaching, even while being persecuted, we read in Acts chapter 8 and verse 8, and there was great joy in that city. Everything else notwithstanding, these are the things then that characterize the kingdom of God, righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. And so I wonder, based on this definition of the kingdom, are you able to call yourself a subject of the kingdom of God? The subjects of Christ's kingdom are not the ones who nitpick over non-essentials of external religious practices, such as meat and drink, or a host of other non-essentials. No, the work of salvation does much more than that. We are, you see, translated into this kingdom of God supernaturally. Colossians 1, 12 and 13, giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. If you're a subject of this kingdom, then you know in some measure what I'm talking about when I describe righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. And so may those things indeed be our portion as the subjects of Christ's kingdom. And may we, in the joy of salvation, shine brightly as we ever endeavor to extend the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's close then in prayer. And let's all pray. O Lord, as we bow in thy presence now and bring this meeting to a close, we thank thee for delivering us from the kingdom of darkness. We are astonished, to be sure, O Lord, at the extent of that darkness in this present evil world, but we thank thee that we've been delivered from the ruler of this world and we've been translated into the kingdom of thy dear Son, and we thank Thee that our King is not disturbed. He is seated at God's right hand, where He is indeed building His church and extending His kingdom. O oh Lord, may the privileges of being subjects of this kingdom be our portion, and may we indeed shine brightly for Thee as we know the peace and the joy that comes from an imputed righteousness and helps us to strive for righteousness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.